Today is Quinquagesima Sunday. The epistle for this Quinquagesima Sunday is taken from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, if I should speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have charity, I have become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, yet do not have charity, I am nothing. And if I distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, yet do not have charity, it profits me nothing. Charity is patient, is kind. Charity does not envy, is not pretentious, is not puffed up, is not ambitious, is not self-seeking, is not provoked. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice over wickedness, but rejoices with the truth, bears with all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails, whereas prophecies will disappear and tongues will cease and knowledge will be destroyed. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I felt as a child, I thought as a child. Now that I have become a man, I have put away the things of a child. We see now through a mirror in an obscure manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I have been known. So there abide faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 18th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. At that time, Jesus, taking to himself the twelve, said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that have been written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and scourged and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will put him to death. And on the third day, he will rise again. And they understood none of these things, and the saying was hidden from them, Neither did they get to know the things that were being said. Now it came to pass, as he drew near to Jericho, that a certain blind man was sitting by the wayside begging. But hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this might be. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they who went in front angrily tried to silence him. But he cried out all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then Jesus stopped and commanded that he should be brought to him. And when he drew near, he asked him, saying, What would you have me do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may see. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And at once he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people upon seeing it gave praise to God. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear Reverend Fathers, dear faithful, one of the many powerful sentences we find in the imitation of Christ is the one that says, Jesus has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few that are willing to bear his cross. The, we find the apostles in today's gospel not in any way loving the cross of our Lord. Our Lord tells them very clearly, and it's in fact the third time that he has told them what is going to happen. He makes this prediction 
about the end of his life, that he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, that he's going to be mocked, that he's going to be spit upon, that he's going to be scourged, that he's going to be put to death, and on the third day, he will rise again. The gospel says that that the apostles did not understand anything of what he was saying, that his meaning was hidden from them, and that the situation did not improve over time, that they, they didn't get it after a few days. They continued in their lack of understanding. And it wasn't like what, what our Lord was saying was particularly obscure. He wasn't using really complicated language or long, highfalutin sentences. When, when he was talking to them, it was, it was just very simple. They didn't understand the cross because they did not want to understand. They didn't what, want what he was saying to them to be true. They loved him, and they did not want what he was saying to, to happen to them. Well, immediately after this, we have this really interesting story of the blind man. It's, and it's interesting because the blind man is precisely someone who cannot see. And the apostles are men who can see. Yet, yet this blind man who cannot see with his eyes somehow seems to be able to understand our Lord better than the apostles who are, are living with our Lord and seeing him with their physical eyes. Um, he, he asks who, who it is, and they say it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he has this belief that, that our Lord is full of, of, of mercy and power and be willing to exercise a great miracle upon him. So he just keeps crying out to our Lord, Jesus, son of David, have, have mercy on me. And I think in one of the other Gospels, it's, it says that this is the apostles. The apostles are, in fact, in fact, telling him, you know, be quiet. Be quiet. Um, don't, don't leave him alone. But this blind man, he's, he's very persevering. He has a persevering prayer and asks for our Lord um, to have mercy upon him. He keeps crying out. So the blind man is, is distinguished from the apostles because he, he wants to submit himself to our Lord. He, he is, is willing to be instructed by our Lord. And of course, what happens is our Lord restores his sight. He immediately begins to see. And the apostles themselves, they would also have seen. They would have understood if they had been willing to submit their judgment to our Lord. So my dear faithful, this is, this is the way it is for us when we're, when we're coming up to Lent, we, we have, the church wants us to hear these words of our Lord where, where he says to us, I'm going to Calvary. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm, I'm going to be scourged. And they're going to crucify me. This is, this is what's going to happen to me. And, and our response is not, is not meant to be, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, far be this from you. Um, I don't, I don't want that to, to be what's, what's going to happen. Rather, we must, we must brace ourselves and say, Lord, I, I love you above all things. I want to accompany you. I want to be with you on your journey. I want to suffer with you during this season of Lent. Sign me up for 40 days of penance and mortification so that I can be with you in your sufferings. So this is the spirit of, of this beautiful season that, that we as Catholics um, have come around for us every single year where the church asks us to, to really go all out in our efforts to unite ourselves with the sufferings of our Lord.
you know, there's three traditional practices during, during Lent for us to do this. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But today I just want to focus on, on one of them um, so that we can hopefully uh, be really generous to our Lord during this season, and that is the practice of mortification. I want to try to understand what mortification is, why it's a necessary condition for following our Lord, the fruits that it has on our soul, and how to practice it. So according to Father Alfonso Rodriguez, who, who writes a wonderful manual of, of Christian spirituality, he says, mortification consists in regulating what was irregular, in ordering and moderating our passions and evil inclinations and our disorderly self-love. And he quotes St. Jerome as saying, He denies himself and takes up his cross, who before was unchaste and becomes now chaste and pure, who before was intemperate and becomes now very abstemious, who before was timid and weak and now becomes strong and constant. The essence of mortification is a pushing back of our sinful inclinations, a, a locking them down, a controlling, a moderating of our own selves. We um, deny ourselves. We deny ourselves through mortification. And our Lord tells us very clearly that this is precondition for following him. If, if we're saying to ourselves in Lent, I, I want to be with our Lord. I want to walk with him on the way to Calvary so that I can die with him and then participate in his glory, in his um, resurrected glory. Well, we have to first deny ourselves. If anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Father Rodriguez was, was a Spanish Jesuit, and, and so he, he gives a, a very, um, you may say, 17th century Spanish metaphor for, for what this consists in. He says, consider if you're, if you're a captain of an Spanish, of the Spanish army, and, you know, you've got in your castle some Muslim prisoners, and you're going out to go, to go to war against, against the Moors. You know, you're going to do the, the Matamoros thing. And, and so, you, before you go, one thing you're definitely going to do is, is you're going to put your prisoners in the dungeon and chain them up. Because you don't want that when you're out there, in front of your castle attacking them, that they themselves come out and assist your own enemy. He says, that's what mortification is like for you. You have within yourselves enemies of our Lord. You have these forces within you that fight against union with our Lord. So what you want to do is, is to bind them, to, to chain them up, so that you can go out and accompany our Lord in his way to, to Calvary. So if we are able to do that, if we're, if we're able to practice mortification, the main fruit that we derive from it is precisely this union with our Lord. We, we are able to be with our Lord. We are able to love him with the characteristics, these beautiful characteristics of love that St. Paul gives in the epistle. You, you know that, that God made us for himself. And, and so we, we by, by our own uh, soul, by, by our own inclination, God, God made us to incline towards him. But there's a lot of obstacles often that prevent us from, from following that inclination. We're, we're attracted to God when our soul is right. But when our soul is not right, we, we are turned away from him. 
That's kind of what our Lord was saying last, last week in his parable about the sower and the seed. You know, the seed is sown, the people receive the word of God, and they're, they're very keen, they're very enthusiastic about it. But some of those who are enthusiastic, you know, that, that enthusiasm gets choked up by the pleasures of the world, or it gets choked up by the difficulties they find in practicing the spiritual life. And then the seed does not germinate and the plant dies. But this is precisely what does not happen with regards to mortified souls. Those, those who are practicing mortification, they remove all of those obstacles. They get rid of the thorns. They, they are, are, are able to handle the difficulty and go to our Lord. St. Augustine gives two images of, of what it, of what mortification is like and how it, it makes us capable, makes our soul, it kind of frees our soul, makes it capable of flying to God and uniting itself with God. He talks about the force of gravity and you, you know how when you take a rock and like you put it on a table or, or, or even, even hold it in your hand, um, that, that the rock by its natural inclination, it, it wants to go to the earth because it's being pulled by gravity. But that table that it's resting on is holding it back, is not letting it go to the ground. Um, and is, but, but as soon as you remove the table, immediately it, it will go to the ground. So, so to our soul, we're made for God. We have this certain attraction towards God. And once we remove the obstacles to uniting ourselves with him by our practices of mortification, then our soul will go. Another image that he gives is, is the deer is very thirsty, a very thirsty deer. And he wants to, to, to drink from this, this ni- nice, um, bubbly brook that's, that's nearby. So he's going to the brook to, to slake his thirst. And there is a serpent in the way. And the, the deer, because he desires so much that, to, to slake his thirst from this, this bubbling brook, he stamps on the head of the serpent uh, with his hoof, so so to remove this obstacle to him um, getting getting the, this nice drink from the brook. Saint Augustine says the serpents are our vices and disorderly passions. Kill and mortify those serpents, and then you will have a great thirst after virtue and perfection. This is in fact what the what the word mortification means. It means to put to death. So we, we, we want to identify those, those snakes that, that, that are inside of us that, that are blocking the way to us attaining union with God. And so we seek to put these snakes that are in us to death. There's really two ways in, in which we accomplish this. There's external mortification and there's internal mortification. External mortification concerns things that we do to our body our, our body, you know, we, we, we have the natural inclination, especially in this 21st century world where we live so luxuriously, we, we have the inclination to pamper our body um, and to have a very comfortable and delightful life on the, the, this, the material side. So we as Catholics, what, what we do is, is we say, I am purposely going to withhold comforts and delights from my own body. I'm, I'm going to recognize that the delights that I give to my body in, in food or drink or sleep or whatever, they are an obstacle to God. I start, I start to like them more than spiritual things. I become very material. The more material I am, 
the less spiritual I am. So I'm going to choose things. I'm going to, to, to make my body uncomfortable. I'm going to choose things that, that will make things uncomfortable for my body. Perhaps we will eat less food and feel the pangs of hunger. Or we'll eat food that we do not like instead of eating our favorite food all the time. We'll wear uncomfortable clothing or sleep on an uncomfortable bed or, or whatever. Things that we know will, will take away some bodily comfort from us. Then there's the internal mortification, which is even higher than the external because it's, it concerns our soul directly. The external concerns our body. The internal concerns our soul, which is much higher than our body. It is, is much more directly concerned with our relationship with God. So we practice this internal mortification when we try to restrain our evil inclinations. It's important for us to, to ask ourselves the question, like identify in us, what, what are my bad inclinations? What are my vices? What is my predominant fault? And then to fight them. Um, when, when we practice this internal mortification, sometimes we may uh, be attempting to overcome our anger or repress our impatience to, uh, to, to give up our own will setting aside our judgment on things that don't matter, I'll just like let these things go that, that really don't matter so much instead of trying to get my way all the time. Uh, restraining our eyes, if, we, if we're too curious, um, that's our in, internal fault. Holding our tongue and keeping silence when we would like to speak, if, if, we, if we are too unmortified in our speech. Um, be, these, these are examples, and really, of course, there, there's innumerable ways by which we can practice this in internal mortification. There's innumerable ways to practice the external mortification. I think throughout the ages, Catholics have always been very creative uh, in finding the, some, some good penances to do during the time of Lent. As I say, the most important thing is, is for us to think and say to ourselves, what is my main fault? If there is something that would lead me to turn completely away from God, what is that thing? If I ask my friend, and I said to my friend, friend, you know me better than anybody else. In your mind, what is, what is my main fault that, that would uh, cause me to fall into sin? And do, uh, does your friend say, oh, you, you're a big foodie. You, you like food too much. And so you're always thinking about food. You're always talking about food. You need to, you need to cut down on your food intake. Um, or they say, you're too curious. You're, you're always, you're always looking at the news. You're too involved in politics. Um, you're always re reading on the things on the internet, wanting to see and hear things, learn the, the latest, uh, thing that, that's going on. Or would they say, perhaps you're too impatient. You're too quick to anger. You have a quick temper. You need to mortify your uh, impatience and your anger. Whatever it is, uh, we need to try to identify those enemies, those serpents that, that are inside of us, those, those evil inclinations, and try to attack them, to kill and mortify them. It really does take that effort. That we, we, want, we don't want to uh, take any prisoners. You know, we, we do want to put them to death. So my dear faithful, we, we should have a very great desire to follow our Lord during this season of Lent. He is, 
He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. We can do nothing greater in this life than to be with him, especially on that royal way of the cross, um, so that we can be a friend, this friend of the cross of Christ. I just want to leave you with some beautiful words from St. Louis de Montfort. He founded like a confraternity of friends of the cross, and, and he wrote this letter to them to just inspire them to embrace their crosses, um, to, to, to accompany our Lord. And he said the following, A friend of the cross is an all-powerful king, a champion who triumphs over the devil, the world, and the flesh in their threefold concupiscence. He crushes the pride of Satan by his love of humiliations. He overcomes the greed of the world by his love of poverty. He restrains the sensuality of the flesh by his love of suffering. A perfect friend of, of the cross is a true Christ-bearer, or rather, another Christ, so that he can truly say, I live now not with my own life, but with the life of Christ who lives in me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.